Section 3 of Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptures, and Architects, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linny. Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptures, and Architects, Volume 1, by Giorgio Vasari. Translated by Gaston de Ver. Section 3. Preface to the Lives. I have no manner of doubt that it is with almost all writers a common and deeply fixed opinion that sculpture and painting together were first discovered by the light of nature by the people of Egypt, and that there are certain others who attribute to the Chaldeans the first rough sketches in marble and the first reliefs in statuary even as they also give to the Greeks the invention of the brush and of colouring. But I will surely say that of both one and the other of these arts, the design, which is their foundation, nay, rather, the very soul that conceives and nourishes within itself all the parts of man's intellect, was already most perfect before the creation of all other things, when the Almighty God, having made the great body of the world, and having adorned the heavens with their exceeding bright lights, descended lower with his intellect into the clearness of the air and the solidity of the earth, and, shaping man, discovered, together with the lovely creation of all things, the first form of sculpture, from which man afterwards, step by step, and this may not be denied, as from a true pattern, there were taken statues, sculptures, and the science of pose and of outline, and for the first pictures, whatsoever they were, softness, harmony, and the concord and discord that comes from light and shade. Thus, then, the first model, whence there issued the first image of men, was a lump of clay, and not without reason, seeing that the divine architect of time and of nature being himself most perfect, wished to show in the imperfection of the material the way to add and to take away, in the same manner wherein the good sculptors and painters are wont to work, who, adding and taking away in their models, bring their imperfect sketches to that final perfection which they desire. He gave to man that most vivid color of flesh, whence afterwards they were drawn for painting, from the minds of the earth, the colors themselves for the counterfeiting of all those things that are required for pictures. It is true, indeed, that it cannot be affirmed for certain what was made by the man before the flood in these arts in imitation of so beautiful a work, although it is reasonable to believe that they too carved and painted in every manner, seeing that Belus, son of the proud Nimrod, about two hundred years after the flood, caused to be made that statue wherefrom there was afterwards born idolatry, and his son's wife, the very famous Semiramis, queen of Babylon, in the building of that city, placed among its adornments not only diverse varied kinds of animals portrayed and colored from nature, but also the image of herself and of Ninus, her husband, and moreover statues in bronze of her husband's father, of her husband's mother, and of the mother of the latter, as Diodorus relates, calling them by the Greek names that did not yet exist, 
Jove, Juno, and Opes. From these statues, perchance, the Chaldeans learned to make the images of their gods, seeing that a hundred fifty years later, Rachel, in flying from Mesopotamia together with Jacob, her husband, stole the idols of Laban, her father, as is clearly related in Genesis. Nor, indeed, were the Chaldeans alone in making sculptures and pictures, but the Egyptians made them also, exercising themselves in these arts with that so great zeal which is shown in the marvellous tomb of the most ancient king Osimandias, copiously described by Diodorus, and proved by the stern commandment made by Moses in the exodus from Egypt, namely, that under pain of death there should be made to God no image whatsoever. He, on descending from the mountain, having found the golden calf wrought and adored solemnly by his people, and being greatly perturbed to see divine honors paid to the image of a beast, not only broke it and reduced it to powder, but for punishment of so great a sin, caused many thousands of the wicked sons of Israel to be slain by the Levites. But because not the making of statues, but their adoration was a deadly sin, we read in Exodus that the art of design and of statuary, not only in marble but in every kind of metal, was bestowed by the mouth of God on Bezaleel of the tribe of Judah, and on Aholiab of the tribe of Dan, who were those that made the two cherubim of gold, the candlesticks, the veal, the borders of the priestly vestments, and so many other most beautiful castings for the tabernacle, for no other reason than to bring the people to contemplate and to adore them. From the thing seen before the flood, then, the pride of men found the way to make the statues of those for whom they wished that they should remain famous and immortal in the world. And the Greeks, who think differently about this origin, say that the Ethiopians invented the first statues, as Diodorus tells, that the Egyptians took them from the Ethiopians, and from them the Greeks, for, by Homer's time, sculpture and painting are seen to have been perfected, as it is proved in discoursing of the shield of Achilles by that divine poet who shows it to us carved and painted, rather than described with every form of art. Lactantius Fermianus, by way of fable, attributes it to Prometheus, who, in the manner of Almighty God, shaped man's image out of mud. And from him, he declares, the art of statuary came. But according to what Pliny writes, this came to Egypt from Gyges the Lydian, who, being by the fire and gazing at his own shadow, suddenly, with some charcoal in his hand, drew his own outline on the wall. And from that age, for a time, outlines only were wont to be used, with no body of color, as the St. Pliny confirms which method was rediscovered with more labor by Philocles the Egyptian, and likewise by Cleanthes and Ardises of Corinth, and by Telephonis of Sicyon. Cleophanthes of Corinth was the first among the Greeks who used colors, and Apollodorus the first who discovered the brush. There followed Polygnotus of Thasus, Zeuxis, and Timagoras of Colchis, with Pythias and Aglaophon, almost celebrated. And after these, the most famous, Apelles, so much esteemed and honored by Alexander the Great for his talent, and the most ingenious investigator of slender and false favor, as Lucian shows us. 
even as almost all the excellent painters and sculptors were endowed by heaven in nearly every case not only with the adornment of poetry as may be read of Pacovius, but with philosophy besides as may be seen in metrodorus who being as well versed in philosophy as in painting was sent by the athenians to paulus emilius to adorn his triumph and remain with him to read philosophy to his sons the art of sculpture then was greatly exercised in greece and there appeared many excellent craftsmen and among others phidias an athenian with praxiteles and polycletus all very great masters while lysippus and pergoteles were excellent in sunk reliefs and pygmalion in reliefs in ivory of whom there is a fable that by his prayers he obtained breath and spirit for the figure of a virgin that he made painting likewise was honoured and rewarded by the ancient greeks and romans seeing that to those who made it appear marvellous they showed favour by bestowing on them citizenship and the highest dignities so greatly did this art flourish in rome that fabius gave renown to his house by writing his name under the thing so beautifully painted by him in the temple of Sallus, and calling himself fabius pictor it was forbidden by public decree that slaves should exercise this art throughout the cities and so much honour did the nations pay without ceasing to the art and to the craftsmen that the rarest works were sent among the triumphal spoils as marvellous things to rome and the finest craftsmen were freed from slavery and recompensed with honours and rewards by the commonwealths the romans themselves bore so great reverence for these arts that besides the respect that marcellus in sacking the city of syracuse commanded to be paid to a craftsman famous in them in planning the assault of the aforesaid city they took care not to set fire to that quarter wherein there was a most beautiful painted panel which was afterwards carried to rome in the triumph with much pomp thither having so to speak despoiled the world in course of time they assembled the craftsmen themselves as well as their finest works wherewith afterwards rome became so beautiful for the reason that she gained so great adornment from the statues from abroad more than from her own native ones it being known that in rhodes the city of an island in no way large there were more than three thousand statues counted either in bronze or in marble nor did the athenians have less while those at olympia and at delphi were many more and those in corinth numberless and all were most beautiful and of the greatest value is it not known that nicomedes king of lycia in his eagerness for a venus that was by the hand of praxiteles spent on it almost all the wealth of his people did not atalus the same who in order to possess the picture of bacchus painted by aristides did not scruple to spend on it more than six thousand sesterces which picture was placed by lysias mummius in the temple of ceres with the greatest pomp in order to adorn rome but for all that the nobility of these arts was so highly valued it is none the less not yet known for certain who gave them their first beginning for as has been already said above it appears most ancient among the chaldeans some give it to the ethiopians and the greeks attribute it to themselves and it may be thought not without reason that it is perchance even more ancient among the etruscans as our leon battista alberti testifies 
whereof we have clear enough proof in the marvellous tomb of Porcena at Cusi, where, no long time since, there were discovered underground, between the walls of the labyrinth, some terracotta tiles with figures on them in half-relief, so excellent and in so beautiful a manner that it can be easily recognized that the art was not begun precisely at that time, nay, rather, by reason of the perfection of these works, that it was much nearer its height than its beginning. To this, moreover, witness is likewise borne by our seeing every day many pieces of those red and black vases of Arezzo, made, as may be judged from the manner, about those times, with the most delicate carvings and small figures and scenes in low relief, and many small round masks wrought with great subtlety by masters of that age, men most experienced, as is shown by the effect, and most excellent in that art. It may be seen, moreover, by reason of the statues found at Viterbo at the beginning of the pontificate of Alexander the Sixth, that sculpture was in great esteem, and in no small perfection among the Etruscans. And although it is not known precisely at what time they were made, it may be reasonably conjectured, both from the manner of the figures and from the style of the tombs and of the buildings, no less than from the inscriptions in those Etruscan letters, that they are most ancient, and were made at a time when the affairs of this country were in a good and prosperous state. But what clearer proof of this can be sought, seeing that in our own day, that is, in the year 1554, there has been found a bronze figure of the chimera of Bellerophon, in making the ditches, fortifications, and walls of Arezzo, from which figure it is recognized that the perfection of that art existed in ancient times among the Etruscans, as may be seen from the Etruscan manner, and still more from the letters carved on a paw, about which, since they are but few, and there is no one now who understands the Etruscan tongue, it is conjectured that they may represent the name of the master, as well as that of the figure itself, and perchance also the date, according to the use of those times. This figure, by reason of its beauty and antiquity, has been placed in our day by the Lord Duke Cosimo, in the hall of the new rooms in his palace, wherein there have been painted by me the acts of Pope Leo X. And besides this, there were found in the same place many small figures in bronze, after the same manner, which are in the hands of the said Lord Duke. But since the dates of the works of the Greeks, the Ethiopians, and the Chaldeans are as doubtful as our own, and perhaps more, and by reason of the greater need of founding our judgment about these works on conjectures, which, however, are not so feeble that they are in every way wide of the mark, I believe that I strayed not at all from the truth, and I think that every one who will consent to consider this question discreetly will judge as I did, when I said above that the origin of these arts was nature herself, and the exemplar model, the most beautiful fabric of the world, and the master, that divine light infused by special grace into us, which has not only made us superior to the other animals, but, if it be not sin to say it, like to God. And, if in our own times it has been seen, as I trust to be able to demonstrate a little later by many examples, that simple children roughly reared in the woods, with their only model in the beautiful pictures and sculptures of nature, and by the vivacity of their wit, have begun by themselves to make designs, 
how much more may we, nay, must we, confidently believe that these primitive men, who, in proportion as they were less distant from their origin and divine creation, were thereby the more perfect and of better intelligence, that they, by themselves, having for guide nature, for master purest intellect, and for example, the so lovely model of the world, gave birth to these most noble arts, and from a small beginning, little by little bettering them, brought them, at last, to perfection? I do not, indeed, wish to deny that there was one among them who was the first to begin, seeing that I know very well that it must needs be that at some time and from some one man there came the beginning. Nor also will I deny that it may have been possible that one helped another and taught and opened the way to design, to color and relief, because I know that our art is all imitation, of nature for the most part, and then, because a man cannot by himself rise so high, of those works that are executed by those whom he judges to be better masters than himself. But I say, surely, that the wishing to affirm dogmatically who this man or these men were is a thing very perilous to judge, and perchance little necessary to know, provided that we see the true root and origin wherefrom art was born. For, since, of the works that are the life and the glory of the craftsman, the first, and step by step, the second, and the third, were lost by reason of time that consumes all things, and since, for lack of writers at that time, they could not, at least in that way, become known to posterity, their craftsmen as well came to be forgotten. But when, once the writers began to make record of things that were, before their day, they could not speak of those whereof they had not been able to have information, in the manner that there came to be first with them those of whom the memory had been the last to be lost. Even as the first of the poets, by common consent, is said to be Homer, not because there were none before him, for there were, although not so excellent, which is seen clearly from his own works, but because of these early poets, whatever manner of men they were, all knowledge had been lost quite two thousand years before. However, leaving behind us this part, as too uncertain by reason of its antiquity, let us come to the clearer matters of their perfection, ruin, and restoration, or rather, resurrection, whereof we will be able to discourse on much better grounds. I say, then, it being true, indeed, that they began late in Rome, if the first figure was, as is said, the image of Ceres made of metal from the treasure of Spurius Cassius, who, for conspiring to make himself king, was put to death by his own father without any scruple, and that, although the arts of sculpture and of painting continued up to the end of the twelve Caesars, they did not, however, continue in that perfection and excellence which they had enjoyed before, for it may be seen from the edifices that the emperors built in succession one after the other, that these arts, decaying from one day to another, were coming, little by little, to lose their whole perfection of design. And to this clear testimony is borne by the works of sculpture and of architecture that were wrought in the time of Constantine in Rome, and in particular the triumphal ark raised for him by the Roman people near the Colosseum, wherein it is seen that in the foe of good masters they not only made use of marble groups made at the time of Trajan, 
but also of the spoils brought from various places to Rome. And whosoever knows that the votive offerings in the medallions, that is, the sculptures in half-relief, and likewise the prisoners, and the large groups, and the columns, and the mouldings and the other ornaments, whether made before or from spoils, are excellently wrought, knows also that the works which were made to fill up by the sculptures of that time are of the rudest, and also are certain small groups with little figures in marble below the medallions, and the lowest bays wherein there are certain victories, and certain rivers between the arches at the sides, which are very rude, and so made that it can be believed most surely that by that time the art of sculpture had begun to lose something of the good. And there had not yet come the Goths and the other barbarous and outlandish peoples who destroyed, together with Italy, all the finer arts. It is true, indeed, that in the sad times architecture had suffered less harm than the other arts of design had suffered. For in the bath that Constantine erected on the Lateran, in the entrance of the principal porch, it may be seen, to say nothing of the porphyry columns, the capitals wrought in marble, and the double bases taken from some other place and very well carved, that the whole composition of the building is very well conceived, whereas, on the contrary, the stucco, the mosaics, and certain incrustations on the walls made by masters of that time are not equal to those that he caused to be placed in the same bath, which were taken, for the most part, from the temples of the heathen gods. Constantine, so it is said, did the same in the garden of Equitius, in making the temple which he afterwards endowed and gave to the Christian priests. In like manner, the magnificent church of San Giovanni Laterano, erected by the same emperor, can bear witness to the same, namely, that in his day sculpture had already greatly declined, for the image of the Saviour and the twelve apostles in silver that he caused to be made were very debased sculptures, wrought without art, and with very little design. Besides this, whosoever examines with diligence the medals of Constantine, and his image and other statues made by the sculptures of that time, which are at the present day in the Campidoglio, may see clearly that they are very far removed from the perfection of the medals and statues of the other emperors. And all this shows that long before the coming of the Goths into Italy, sculpture had greatly declined. Architecture, as has been said, continued to maintain itself, if not so perfect, in a better state. Nor is there reason to marvel at this, seeing that, as the great edifices were made almost wholly of spoils, it was easy for the architects, in making the new, to imitate in great measure the old, which they had ever before their eyes, and that much more easily than the sculptures could imitate the good figures of the ancients, their art having wholly vanished. And that this is true is manifest, because the church of the Prince of the Apostles on the Vatican was not rich save in columns, bases, capitals, architraves, mouldings, doors, and other incrustations and ornaments, which were all taken from various places and from the edifices built most magnificently in earlier times. The same could be said of San Croce in Jerusalemme, which Constantine erected at the entreaty of his mother Helena, of San Lorenzo without the walls of Rome, and of San Agnesa, built by him at the request of Constantia, his daughter. 
and who does not know that the font which served for the baptism of both her and her sister was all adorned with works wrought long before and in particular with the porphyry basin carved with most beautiful figures with certain marble candlesticks excellently carved with foliage and with some boys in low relief that are truly most beautiful in short for these and many other reasons it is clear how much in the time of constantine sculpture had already declined and together with it the other fine arts and if anything was wanting to complete this ruin it was supplied to them amply by the departure of constantine from rome on his going to establish the seat of the empire at byzantium for the reason that he took with him not only all the best sculptors and other craftsmen of that age whatsoever manner of men they were but also an infinite number of statues and other works of sculpture all most beautiful after the departure of constantine the caesars whom he left in italy building continually both in rome and elsewhere exerted themselves to make their works as fine as they could but as may be seen sculpture as well as painting and architecture went ever from bad to worse and this perchance came to pass because when human affairs begin to decline they never cease to go ever lower and lower until such time as they can grow no worse so too it may be seen that although at the time of pope liberius the architects of that day strove to do something great in constructing the church of santa maria maggiore they were yet not happy in the success of the whole for the reason that although that building which is likewise composed for the greater part of spoils was made with good enough proportions it cannot be denied any the less not to speak of certain other parts that the frieze made right round above the columns with ornaments in stucco and in painting is wholly wanting in design and that many other things which are seen in that great church demonstrate the imperfection of the arts many years after when the christians were persecuted under julian the apostate there was erected on the Cilian mount a church to st john and st paul the martyrs in a manner so much worse than those named above that it is seen clearly that the art was at that time little less than wholly lost the buildings too that were erected at the same time in tuscany bear most ample testimony to this and not to speak of many others the church that was built outside the walls of arezzo to san donatus bishop of that city who together with the monk hilarion suffered martyrdom under the said julian the apostate was in no way better in architecture than those named above nor can it be believed that this came from anything else but the absence of better architects in that age seeing that the said church as it has been possible to see in our own day which is octagonal and constructed from the spoils of the theatre the colosseum and other edifices that had been standing in arezzo before it was converted to the faith of christ was built without thought of economy and at the greatest cost and adorned with columns of granite of porphyry and of many coloured marbles which had belonged to the said buildings and for myself i do not doubt from the expense which was clearly bestowed on that church that if the aretins had had better architects they would have built something marvellous for it may be seen from what they did that they spared nothing if only they might make that work as rich and as well designed as they possibly could and since as has been already said so many times 
architecture had lost less of its perfection than the other arts, there was to be seen therein some little of the good. At this time, likewise, was enlarged the church of Santa Maria in Grado, in honor of the said Hilarion, for the reason that he had been for a long time living in it, when he went, with Donatus, to the crown of martyrdom. But because fortune, when she has brought men to the height of her wheel, is wont, either in jest or in repentance, to throw them down again, it came about, after these things, that there rose up in various parts of the world all the barbarous peoples against Rome, whence there ensued after no long time not only the humiliation of so great an empire, but the ruin of the whole, and above all of Rome herself, and with her were, likewise, utterly ruined, the most excellent craftsmen, sculptors, painters, and architects, leaving the arts and their own selves buried and submerged among the miserable massacres and ruins of that most famous city. And the first to fall into decay were painting and sculpture, as being arts that served more for pleasure than for use, while the other, namely architecture, as being necessary and useful for bodily weal, continued to exist, but no longer in its perfection and excellence. And if it had not been that the sculptures and pictures presented to the eyes of those who were born from day to day, those who had been thereby honored to the end that they might have eternal life, there would soon have been lost the memory of both, whereas some of them survived in the images and in inscriptions placed in private houses, as well as in treasuries, and finally in the very tombs, whereof a great part was destroyed by a barbarous and savage race, who had nothing in them of men but the shape and the name. These, among others, were the Visigoths, who, having created Alaric their king, assailed Italy and Rome, and sacked the city twice, without respect for anything whatsoever. The same too did the Vandals, having come from Africa with Genseric their king, who, not content with his booty and prey and all the cruelties that he wrought there, carried away her people into slavery, to their exceeding great misery, and among them Eudoxia, once the wife of the Emperor Valentinian, who had been slaughtered no long time before by his own soldiers. For these, having fallen away in very great measure from the ancient Roman valor, for the reason that all the best had gone a long time before to Byzantium with the Emperor Constantine, had no longer any good customs or ways of life. Nay more, there had been lost at one and the same time all true men and every sort of virtue and laws, habits, names, and tongues had been changed, and all these things together, and each by itself, had caused every lovely mind and lofty intellect to become most brutish and most base. But what brought infinite harm and damage on the sad professions, even more than all the aforesaid causes, was the burning zeal of the new Christian religion, which, after a long and bloody combat, with its wealth of miracles, and with the sincerity of its works, had finally cast down and swept away the old faith of the heathens, and, devoting itself most ardently, with all diligence, to driving out and extirpating root and branch every least occasion whence error could arise, not only defaced or threw to the ground all the marvellous statues, sculptures, pictures, mosaics, and ornament of the false gods of the heathens, 
but even the memorials and the honours of numberless men of mark, to whom, for their excellent merits, the noble spirit of the ancients had set up statues and other memorials in public places. Nay, more, it not only destroyed, in order to build the churches for the Christian use, the most honoured temples of the idols, but in order to ennoble and adorn San Pietro, to say nothing of the ornaments which had been there from the beginning, it also robbed of its stone columns the mausoleum of Hadrian, now called the Castello di Sant'Angelo, and many other buildings that today we see in ruins. And although the Christian religion did not do this by reason of hatred that it bore to the arts, but only in order to humiliate and cast down the gods of the heathens, it was none the less true that from this most ardent zeal there came so great ruin on these honoured professions that their very form was wholly lost. And, as if aught were wanting to this grievous misfortune, there arose against Rome the wrath of Totila, who, besides raising her walls and destroying with fire and sword all her most wonderful and noble buildings, burned the whole city from end to end, and having robbed her of every living body, left her a prey to flames and fire, so that there was not found in her in eighteen successive days a single living soul, and he cast down and destroyed so completely the marvellous statues, pictures, mosaics, and works in stucco, that there was lost, I do not say only their majesty, but their very form and essence. Wherefore, it being the lower rooms chiefly of the palaces and other buildings that were wrought with stucco, with painting and with statuary, there was buried, by the ruins from above, all that good work that has been discovered in our own day, and those who came after, judging the whole to be in ruins, planted vines thereon, in a manner that, since the said lower rooms remained under the ground, the moderns have called them grottoes and grotesque, the pictures that are therein seen at the present day. After the end of the Ostrogoths, who were destroyed by Narses, men were living among the ruins of Rome, in some fashion, poorly indeed, when there came, after a hundred years, Constantine the Second, Emperor of Constantinople, who, although received lovingly by the Romans, laid waste, robbed, and carried away all that had remained, more by chance than by the good will of those who had destroyed her, in the miserable city of Rome. It is true, indeed, that he was not able to enjoy this booty, because, being carried by a sea tempest to Sicily, and being justly slain by his own men, he left his spoils, his kingdom, and his life a prey to fortune. But she, not yet content with the woes of Rome, to the end that the thing stolen might never return, brought thither for the ruin of the island a host of Saracens, who carried off both the wealth of the Sicilians and the spoils of Rome to Alexandria, to the very great shame and loss of Italy and of Christendom. And so all that the pontiffs had not destroyed, and above all St. Gregory, who is said to have decreed banishment against all the remainder of the statues and of the spoils of the buildings, came finally, at the hands of that most rascally Greek, to an evil end, in a manner that, there being no trace or sign to be found of anything that was in any way good, the men who came after, although rude and boorish, and in particular in their pictures and sculptures, yet, incited by nature and refined by the air, set themselves to work, not according to the rules of the aforesaid arts, which they did not know, 
but according to the quality of their own intelligence. The art of design, then, having been brought to these limits both before and during the lordship of the Lombards over Italy, and also afterwards, continued gradually to grow worse, although some little work was done, and so much that nothing could have been more rudely wrought or with less design than what was done, as bear witness, besides many other works, certain figures that are in the portico of San Pietro in Rome, above the doors, wrought in the Greek manner in memory of certain holy fathers who had made disputation for a holy church in certain councils. To this, likewise, bear witness many works in the same manner that are to be seen in this city and in the whole exarchate of Ravenna, and in particular some that are in Santa Maria Rotonda, without that city, made a little time after the Lombards had been driven out of Italy. In this church, as I will not forbear to say, there may be seen a thing most notable and marvellous, namely the vault, or rather cupola, that covers it, which, although it is ten braccia wide and serves for roof and covering to that building, is nevertheless of one single piece, so great and ponderous, that it seems almost impossible that such a stone, weighing more than two hundred thousand pounds, could have been set into place so high. But, to return to our subject, there issued from the hands of the masters of those times those puppet-like and uncouth figures that are still to be seen in the works of old. The same thing happened to architecture, seeing that, since it was necessary to build, and since form and the good method were completely lost by reason of the death of the craftsmen and the destruction and ruin of their works, those who apply themselves to this exercise built nothing that either in ordering or in proportion showed any grace or design or reason whatsoever. Wherefore, there came to arise new architects, who brought from their barbarous races the method of that manner of buildings that are called by us today German. And they made some that are rather a source of laughter for us moderns than creditable to them, until better craftsmen afterwards found a better style, in some measures similar to the good style of the ancients, even as that manner may be seen throughout all Italy in the old churches, but not the ancient, which were built by them, such as a palace of Theodoric, king of Italy, in Ravenna, and one in Pavia, and another in Modena, all in a barbarous manner, and rather rich and vast than well-conceived or of good architecture. The same may be affirmed of San Stefano in Rimi, of San Martino in Ravenna, and of the church of San Giovanni Evangelista, erected in the same city by Gala Placidia, about the year of our salvation 438, of San Vitale, which was erected in the year 547, of the abbey of Quasi di Fuori, and in short, of many other monasteries and churches erected after the Lombard rule. All these buildings, as has been said, are both large and magnificent, but of the rudest architecture, and among them are many abbeys in France erected to St. Benedict, the church and monastery of Monte Cassino, and the church of San Giovanni Battista at Monza, built by that Theodelinda, queen of the Goths, to whom St. Gregory the Pope wrote his dialogues, in which place that queen caused to be painted the story of the Lombards, wherein it was seen that they shaved the back of their heads, and in front they had long locks, and they dyed themselves as far as the chin. Their garments were of ample linen, as was the use of the Angles and Saxons, and below a mantle of diverse colors, their shoes open as far as the toes, and tied above with certain straps of leather. 
similar to the aforesaid churches, were the church of San Giovanni in Pavia, erected by Gondiberta, daughter of the aforesaid Theodolinda, and in the same city the church of San Salvadore, built by the brother of the said queen, Eribert, who succeeded to the throne of Rodoald, husband of Gondiberta, and the church of Santo Ambrogio in Pavia, erected by Grimold, king of the Lombards, who drove Bertrid, son of Aribert, from his throne. This Bertrid, being restored to his throne after the death of Grimold, erected also in Pavia a monastery for nuns called the Monasterio Nuovo, in honor of Our Lady and of Santa Agatha, and the queen erected one without the walls, dedicated to the Virgin Mary in Perdica. Cunibert, likewise, son of that Bertrid, erected a monastery and church, after the same manner to San Giorgio, called Di Coronate, on the spot where he had gained a great victory over Allahi. Not unlike to these two was the church that the king of the Lombards, Lutprand, who lived in the time of King Pepin, father of Charlemagne, built in Pavia, which is called San Pietro in Celdauro, nor that one likewise that Desiderius built, who reigned after Astolf, namely San Pietro Clivate, in the diocese of Milan, nor the monastery of San Vincenzo in Milan, nor that of Santa Giulia in Brescia, seeing that they were all built at the greatest cost, but in the most ugly and haphazard manner. Later, in Florence, architecture made some little progress, and the church of Sant'Apostolo, that was erected by Charlemagne, although small, was most beautiful in manner. For, not to mention that the shafts of the columns, although they are of separate pieces, show much grace, and are made with beautiful proportion, the capitals also, and the arches, turned to make the little vaulted roofs of the two small aisles, show that in Tuscany there had survived, or in truth arisen, some good craftsmen. In short, the architecture of this church is such that Filippo di Ser Brunellesco did not disdain to avail himself of it as a model in building the church of Santo Spirito and that of San Lorenzo in the same city. The same may be seen in the church of San Marco in Venice, which, to say nothing of San Giorgio Maggiore, erected by Giovanni Morosini in the year 978, was begun under the doge Justiniano, and Giovanni Paraticciaco, close by San Teodosio, when the body of that evangelist was sent from Alexandria to Venice. And, after many fires, which greatly damaged the doge's palace and the church, it was finally rebuilt on the same foundations in the Greek manner, and in that style wherein it is seen today, at very great cost, and under the direction of many architects, in the year of Christ 973, at the time of Doge Domenico Selvo, who had the columns brought from wheresoever he could find them. And so it continued to go on, up to the year 1104, when the Doge was Messer Piero Polani, and, as has been said, with the design of many masters, all Greek. In the same Greek manner, and about the same time, were the seven abbeys that Count Ugo, Marquis of Brandenburg, caused to be built in Tuscany, as can be seen in the Badia of Florence, in that of Settimo, and in the others, which buildings, with the remains of those that are no longer standing, bear testimony that architecture was still in a measure holding its ground, although greatly corrupted, and far removed from the good manner of the ancients. To this can also bear witness many old palaces built in Florence after the ruin of Fiesole, in Tuscan workmanship, 
but with barbaric ordering in the proportions of those doors and windows of immense length, in the curves of the pointed quarter segments, and in the turning of the arches, after the want of the foreign architects of those times. The year afterwards, 1013, it is clear that the art had regained some of its vigor from the rebuilding of that most beautiful church, San Miniato in Sulmonte, in the time of Messer Alibrando, citizen and bishop of Florence, for the reason that, besides the marble ornaments that are seen therein, both within and without, it may be seen from the façade that the Tuscan architects strove as much as they could in the doors, the windows, the columns, the arches, and the mouldings, to imitate the good order of the ancients, having in part recovered it from the most ancient temple of San Giovanni in their city. At the same time, painting, which was little less than wholly spent, may be seen to have begun to win back something, as the mosaic shows that was made in the principal chapel of the said church of San Miniato. From such beginnings, then, these arts commenced to grow better in design throughout Tuscany, as is seen in the year 1016, from the commencement made by the people of Pisa for the building of their Duomo, seeing that in those times it was a great thing for men to put their hands to the construction of a church made, as this was, with five naves, and almost wholly of marble, both within and without. This church, which was built under the direction and design of Buschetto, a Greek of Dulichium, an architect of rarest worth for those times, was erected and adorned by the people of Pisa, with innumerable spoils brought by sea, for they were at the height of their greatness, from diverse most distant places, as is well shown by the columns, bases, capitals, cornices, and all the other kinds of stonework that are therein seen. And seeing that these things were some of them small, some large, and some of a middle size, Great was the judgment and the talent of Buschetto in accommodating them and in making the distribution of all this building, which is very well arranged, both within and without, and, besides other work, he contrived the frontal slope of the façade very ingeniously, with a great number of columns, adorning it besides with columns carved in diverse and varied ways, and with ancient statues, even as he also made the principal doors in the same façade, between which that is, beside that of the Carroccio, there was afterwards given an honourable burial place to Boschetto himself, with three epitaphs, whereof this is one, in Latin verses, in no way dissimilar to others of those times. Quod vix mille boum possent, juga juncta movere, et quod vix patuit per mare ferre ratis, Buschettinissu, quod erat mirabile visu, denna puellarum turba levavit onus and seeing that there has been made mention above of the church of Santa Apostolo in Florence, I will not forbear to say that on a marble slab therein, on one side of the high altar, there may be seen these words. Octavo, quinto die, sextus apridis, in resurrectione domini, Carolus Francorum Rex, a Roma revertens, ingressus Florentium, cumagno gaudio et tripudio susceptus, Civium copiam torquis aures decoravi, Ecclesia Sanctorum Apostolorum, in altari inclusa est lamina plumbea, in qua descripta apparet prefata fundatio, et consecratio facta per archiepiscoporum turpinum, testibus Rolando et Oliverio. The aforesaid edifice of the Duomo in Pisa, 
awaking the minds of many to fair enterprises throughout all Italy, and above all in Tuscany, was the cause that, in the city of Pistoia, in the year 1032, a beginning was made for the church of San Paolo, in the presence of the blessed Atto, bishop of that city, as may be read in a contract made at that time, and, in short, for many other buildings whereof it would take too long to mention at present. I cannot forbear to say, however, following the course of time, that afterwards, in the year 1060, there was erected in Pisa the round church of San Giovanni, opposite the Duomo, and in the same square. And something marvellous and almost wholly incredible is to be found recorded in an old book of the works of the said Duomo, namely, that the columns of the said San Giovanni, the pillars and the vaulting, were raised and completed in fifteen days and no more. In the same book, which any one can see who has the wish, it may be read that for the building of this church there was imposed a tax of one danaio for each fire, but it is not said therein whether of gold or of small coin. And at that time there were in Pisa, as may be seen in the same book, thirty-four thousand fires. Truly, this work was vast, of great cost, and difficult to execute, and above all the vaulting of the tribune, made in the shape of a pear and covered without with lead. The outer side is full of columns, carvings, and groups, and on the frieze of the central door is a Jesus Christ with the twelve apostles in half-relief, after the Greek manner. The people of Lucca, about the same time, that is, in the year 1061, as rivals of the people of Pisa, began the church of San Martino in Lucca, from the design of certain disciples of Buscheto, there being then no other architects in Tuscany. Attached to the façade of this church, there may be seen a marble portico, with many ornaments and carvings, made in memory of Pope Alexander II, who had been, a short time before he was elected to the pontificate, bishop of that city. Of this construction, and of Alexander himself, everything is fully told in nine Latin verses, and the same may be seen in certain other ancient letters engraved on the marble under the portico between the doors. On the said façade are certain figures, and under the portico many scenes in marble from the life of St. Martin, in half-relief, and in the Greek manner. But the best, which are over one of the doors, were made a hundred seventy years after by Nicola Pisano, and finished in 1233, as will be told in the proper place. The wardens, when these were begun, being Abelenato and Aliprando, as it may be clearly seen from certain letters carved in marble in the same place. These figures, by the hand of Nicola Pisano, show how much improvement there came from him to the art of sculpture. Similar to these were most, nay, all of the buildings that were erected in Italy from the times aforesaid up to the year 1250, seeing that little or no acquisition or improvement can be seen to have been made in the space of so many years by architecture, which stayed within the same limits and went on ever in that rude manner, whereof many examples are still to be seen, of which I will at present make no mention, for the reason that they will be spoken of below, according to the occasions that may come before me. In like manner, the good sculptures and pictures, which had been buried under the ruins of Italy, remained up to the same time hidden from were not known to the men whorishly reared in the rudeness of the modern use of that age, wherein no other sculptures or pictures existed than those which a remnant of old Greeks were making 
either in images of clay or stone, or painting monstrous figures, and covering only the bare linments with collar. These craftsmen, as the best, being the only ones in these professions, were summoned to Italy, whither they brought sculpture and painting, together with mosaic, in that style wherein they knew them, and even so they taught them rudely and roughly to the Italians, who afterwards made use of them, as has been told and will be told further, up to a certain time. And the men of those times, not being used to see other excellence or greater perfection in any work than that which they themselves saw, marveled and took these for the best, for all that they were vile, until the spirits of the generation then arising, helped in some places by the subtlety of the air, became so greatly purged that about 1250 heaven, moved to pity for the lovely minds that the Tuscan soil was producing every day, restored them to their first condition. And although those before them had seen remains of arches, of colossi, of statues, of urns, and of storied columns in the ages that came after the sackings, the destructions, and the burnings of Rome, and never knew how to make use of them or draw from them any benefit up to the time mentioned above, the minds that came after discerning well enough the good from the bad, and abandoning the old manners, turned to imitating the ancient with all their industry and wit. But in order that it may be understood more clearly what I call old and what ancient, the ancient were the works made before Constantine in Corinth, in Athens, in Rome, and in other very famous cities, until the time of Nero, the Vespasians, Trajan, Hadrian, and Antoninus, whereas those others are called old, that were executed from St. Sylvester's day up to that time by a certain remnant of Greeks, who knew rather how to die than how to paint. For, since the excellent early craftsmen had been killed in these wars, as has been said, to the remainder of these Greeks, old but not ancient, there had been left nothing but elementary outlines on a ground of color. And to this, at the present day, witness is borne by an infinity of mosaics, which, wrought throughout all Italy by these Greeks, are to be seen in every old church in any city whatsoever of Italy, and above all in the Duomo of Pisa, in San Marco at Venice, and in other places as well. And so, too, they kept making many pictures in that manner, with eyes staring, hands outstretched, and standing on tiptoe, as may still be seen in San Miniato without Florence, between the door that leads into the sacristy and that which leads into the convent, and in Santo Spirito, in the said city, the whole side of the cloister opposite the church, and in like manner at Arezzo, in San Giuliano, and in San Bartolomeo, and in other churches, and, in Rome, in the old church of San Pietro, scenes right round between the windows, works that have more of the monstrous in their lineaments than of likeness to whatsoever they represent. Of sculptures, likewise, they made an infinity, as may still be seen in low relief over the door of San Michele in the Piazza Padella of Florence, and in Ognisanti, and tombs and adornments in many places for the doors of churches, wherein they have certain figures for corbels to support the roof, so rude and vile, so mishappen, and of such a grossness of manner, that it appears impossible that worse could be imagined. Thus far have I thought fit to discourse from the beginning of sculpture and of painting, and peradventure at greater length that was necessary in this place, which I have done, indeed, 
not so much carried away by my affection for art, as urged by the common benefit and advantage of our craftsmen. For, having seen in what way she, from a small beginning, climbed to the greatest height, and how, from a state so noble, she fell into utter ruin, and that, in consequence, the nature of this art is similar to that of the others, which, like human bodies, have their birth, their growth, their growing old, and their death, they will now be able to recognize more easily the progress of her second birth, and of that very perfection whereto she has risen again in our times. And I hope, moreover, that if ever, which God forbid, it should happen at any time, through the negligence of men, or through the malice of time, or finally, through the decree of heaven, which appears to be unwilling that the things of this earth should exist for long in one form, that she falls again into the same chaos of ruin, that these my labors, whatsoever they may be worth, if indeed they may be worthy of a happier fortune, both through what has been already said, and through what remains to say, may be able to keep her alive, or at least to encourage the most exalted minds to provide them with better assistance, so much so that, what with my good will and the works of these masters, she may abound in those aids and adornments wherein, if I may freely speak the truth, she has been wanting up to the present day. But it is now time to come to the life of Giovanni Cimabue, and even as he gave the first beginning to the new method of drawing and painting, so it is just and expedient that he should give it to the lives, in which I will do my utmost to observe, the most that I can, the order of their manners rather than that of time. And, in describing the forms and features of the craftsmen, I will be brief, seeing that their portraits, which have been collected by me with no less cost and fatigue than diligence, will show better what sort of men the craftsmen themselves were in appearance than describing them could ever do. And if the portrait of any one of them should be wanting, that is not through my fault, but by reason of it being nowhere found. And if the said portraits were not peradventure to appear to some one, to be absolutely like to others that might be found, I wish it to be remembered that the portrait made of a man when he was eighteen or twenty years old will never be like to the portrait that may have been made fifteen or twenty years later. To this it must be added that portraits in drawing are never so like as are those in colors, not to mention that the engravers, who have no draughtsmanship, always rob the faces, being unable or not knowing how to make exactly those minutenesses that make them good and true to life, of that perfection which is rarely or never found in portraits cut in wood. In short, how great have been therein my labor, expense and diligence, will be evident to those who, in reading, will see whence I have to the best of my ability unearthed them. End of section 3